This is the Future of Agriculture podcast, the show that explores the people, companies, and ideas shaping the future of agribusiness. If you're curious about innovations in ag tech, rural entrepreneurship, ag sustainability, or food security, this is the show for you. Let's get started. Well, hello there. Thank you so much for downloading this episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hamrich. It's my pleasure every week to bring you the stories of the founders, farmers, innovators, and investors shaping the future of agriculture. I'm just off a week of vacation and a little bit late this morning getting this podcast episode out to you. Sorry about that. But uh, we are here nonetheless. Now, many of you know I'm endlessly interested in water issues and water-related topics. Today's episode is another installment in my exploration to better understand realistic solutions for water problems that are very real in our world today. We have on the show Dr. Wim Bastjansson. He's the founder of EraWatch. The company is very new, I think less than two years maybe, but it's the culmination of decades of Wim's research and consulting on water, irrigation, and remote sensing. Now, if you think irrigating a crop is, you know, kind of like irrigating your lawn, sort of set it and forget it, you're way oversimplifying things. Uh, there are a lot of variables at play, just to name a few, you know, changing moisture availability in the root zone all the time, changing evapotranspiration rates, changing crop needs with a type of crop and the stage of its development. And, and then you have to take into consideration the weather forecasts and how likely all of the above factors will be different in the coming days because of changes in weather. And these are just really a few of the factors. There's many, many, many more, and we're going to explore some of them in today's episode. Now, there are other companies out there trying to help with this complexity. Wim's approach with EarWatch is to use satellite remote sensing to basically sort of let each plant signal its water availability. If that sounds kind of far-fetched, uh, hear him out here. He's got a mountain of research and data to back up his claims. Wim grew up on a farm in the Netherlands, which is the country he still calls home. Uh, growing up five meters below sea level, he was always around ditches, canals, and levees, which developed an interest in water and irrigation from a very early age. But I'm going to drop you into the conversation here where Wim is talking about his academic background, which eventually led to starting EraWatch. Yeah, I have uh, been working at the uh, first as a researcher. Then typically, you know, if you want to do an international research career, which I did, you need a PhD. So I did my PhD and then I became a professor. And then actually I thought uh, two years ago, okay, I have now these 17,000 citations of my work, but this road is not where I want to finish because if I don't bring my technologies to farmers, then who is using it? Only other scientists. So that's why on purpose, um, two years ago, I, I degraded my time involvement with the universities and I started this uh, startup, uh, Idiwatch. I, I still like to work with universities. Universities are great, but I think we have so many huge issues and challenges on water and agriculture in the, at the moment that we have to help farmers. Farmers are often forgotten in this whole uh, discussion. And uh, so that's why I decided to have a startup and, and started to uh, reaching out to farmers. 
Well, I definitely want to get more into that. But before we do, 17,000 citations is incredible. What research of yours are, are most of those citations citing? Well, it's mainly the, the checking of these remote sensing technologies under local conditions, which is good. We have NASA with great satellites and a lot of uh, measurements are taking place. I'm very grateful to NASA that they make these satellite images freely available, so that's very good. But then you need algorithms. Algorithms are models, mathematical models, to convert this raw data into uh, information, such as how wet is your soil, how fast are my crop growing. And most of these uh, researchers, they get curious. they like, is that really true? Is that possible? So they also then code it up or they get the code from me and they check it out and they check it out in Chico and they check it out in Kimberley and they check it out in Nebraska and then in 45 more countries. And I think that is very important if you want to roll out a global product. You know, it cannot be based on a single piece of research somewhere. It has to be really thoroughly tested and also to get away from what we like to call these empirical factors. Uh, you can have um, empirical solutions because you match certain observations in the field with satellite observations, but that cannot be upscaled to any other area. So if you do, for instance, your, ex your experimental work on potatoes, you cannot use it for pistachios. Right. So if we have proper physical models, then actually it's becoming much more scalable. And many of the researchers that I have been working with and people have been citing to my work, they have been checking it by themselves in the field, which in a way I, I appreciate because it's, you know, I always tell my students that the, the butcher should not check his own meat, you know, let, let somebody else uh, check it out, you know, so... It's good that other professors and other researchers tell uh, and write about the accuracy of the models that I have been developing. And so it was clear that your research was getting out to other researchers. What did you notice that convinced you that, uh, number one, farmers weren't getting this information, and number two, they desperately needed it? Well, yes, the water crisis is getting worse. And uh, I see a lot of discussions ongoing in national policies on water savings and agriculture. We should keep in mind that the irrigation sector is using about 70 to 90 percent of the renewable water resources. That's our water in rivers and lakes and reservoirs, but also underground in aquifers. So we really have to be very, yeah, we should have a very good plan on using that water. Now, that is done. There are many um, responsible institutes. We have water agencies. We have water resources departments, and they do great work. But if they do not reach out to the farmer on what he or she should do in terms of water saving, changing maybe the irrigation type or the, the crop types or the way crops are classically cultivated, yeah, then you are not realizing any savings. So I have, I've done many studies for World Bank and Asian Development Bank, and very often the question was, Wim, can you look with the satellites on the real water savings? And very often that was a bit disappointing, because if you don't reach out to the farmer, who is the person on the ground that should realize actions, 
then your policy is not having the right impact. So I, I'm absolutely convinced that governments and responsible agencies should help the farmers. And one way to do that is give them an app on their cell phone so, so that they can really get some guidance. Uh, punishing is not the right thing. Policing or watching is not the right thing, but it's a method of, of helping. And I saw that that, you know, hardly happened. And it's maybe also interesting to mention, Tim, that there is a an, 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 an big development now of many new IT companies that start in agriculture and digital agriculture. And that is good. It's fantastic to have new initiatives and, and startups and so on. But in the end, it's not about the IT. The IT is something, you know, that really good people can do. And, you know, they are good in, in, in their subject. But if you do not understand farming, it's very difficult. You have to know what a farmer needs, number one. And number two, this satellite remote sensing is also quite an, uh, a thing. So it took me 25 years to find out really how you can have smart algorithms that calibrate themselves, that you know, you're not getting strange um, results and so on. And so it's really the combination of IT and agriculture and, and remote sensing science. And I felt that, yeah, a better integration was needed. And also we should really, uh, again, you know, help the farmers by taking better irrigation decisions. And that should be very actionable. And it should be like, hey, what shall I do today? I, I want to get more into the product, but before we do, I've got to ask you, because this is a point that we talk about on this show a lot, which is what governments and universities and companies think a farmer needs to do or should do is not always the same as what a farmer wants to do. Uh, so what is what is sort of the pain point that a farmer feels that's going to drive them to wanting to uh, get more information about how they can irrigate better? Or, what, or maybe another way of asking the question is, what's convincing you uh, farmers want this? Well, I think that uh, many farmers um, are highly motivated also to save water. They live in a certain environment with a restricted volume, and they want to use the volume of water as wise as possible. So they like to get advice. Now, if they get a map, you know, from a scientist saying something on the amount of uh, biomass on their field is like, yeah, okay, so, but what do I need to do tomorrow, you know, or how many inches of water should I give? Uh, and another example is that many uh, remote sensing scientists, they work on soil moisture, There's a lot of uh, research completed, but most of this moisture is the moisture of the topsoil. So just the upper, you know, few inches. And that's not what this farmer wants. You know, this farmer wants to know, well, I have, my crops have root, roots. And what is the moisture in my roots, you know, in my root zone? Because that is what determines the uptake of water and the evapotranspiration of water and the crop production. Uh, so this is another example that the scientists come with a product that is just not compatible with the desire uh, of information of that farmer. 
uh, which is one example. Another example maybe I can give is the uh, spatial detail. So depending, of course, where you are, but in certain states you have many large fields and so on. But also, if for instance, if you look in California, you have many small wine growers. You know, they only have a few acres of land, right? So if you come then with these remote sensing pixels that are very large, you cannot even detect such kind of small fields. So, so it's also an, a method of, of spatial detail. And also what I learned is, you know, this information should always be there. So if it's not there at six o'clock in the morning, they gave up. Uh, it has to be there every day again, every day. And not just like, oh, sorry, today there's no image or, you know, we are too late with processing. Sorry, guys, but you have to wait for another few days. No, then it's too late. So I think the timeline is important, the spatial detail, but also what parameter, what kind of information. Mm -hmm. So a lot of your customers are in California. You're in Europe and you, you've been there, I, I think, for most of your career, if not all. I'd love to just hear more about kind of ag tech in Europe versus the United States. I think you'd have an interesting perspective on on the two sort of ag tech ecosystems. Hmm. No, that's a very interesting question. Uh, my experience on European irrigation is mainly in, in Spain. I must say in Spain, they, uh, yeah, they go through very similar conditions as California. They also, the rivers dry up. They have also aqueducts like the Californian aqueduct. There is some rise with basin irrigation, but that's also what you have in the Sacramento uh, Delta. So it's not, it's, it's, I would say it's very similar. California is um, legally much more advanced. So what I can see, you have acts now. You have a groundwater act. And that, I think, is uh, what you need. In the end, it's all about fairly distributing the resources. That's something that Europe is not so well developed. And that is, I think, because already for a long time, American farmers have water rights. Huh? And uh, you have senior water rights, for instance. So if your father or grandfather already had water rights on his farm that you inherited, you know, then also automatically you have water rights. And I think in that sense, there is a big, big difference on the whole regulation um, with Europe. Otherwise, in terms of efficiencies and crop types, I think it's it's very similar. But I think the legal the legal framework can can really make the difference in the end. There are many countries, you know, Morocco, all larger irrigation systems in Morocco are all over exploited, and this is continuing. In India. It's the same. Northern India, you know, it's all overexploited and it's just continuing. And so the fact that you have a kind of legal system that prevents that, I think, is, is uh, very essential. Maybe farmers do not like that always, but really, um, in the end, it's better for the sustainability. How does that play out in some of those countries that don't ha have that? I mean, it sure is it's terrifying to think about the fragility of, of our global water systems. How do you think about that? Yeah, that is very frightening. And that's, I'm getting very, very uh, you know, sober here. I, I ah, it's, it's, see, the moment people are going to pump groundwater, they, they start 
risking their sustainabilities and the problem only get worse. Uh, and then you need a very strong government to bring it back to normal. China has done it. That's the only country I'm aware of. So when I was involved in ET quota in, in China, already we use remote sensing. It's quite interesting to mention that, actually. China is uh, maybe next to the U.S., most advanced in using remote sensing for irrigation and to measure what their farmers are, are doing. And, of course, the farmers listen to the, the boss, the, the party. So if the party says, look, you're getting 30% less, then the farmers get 30% less. And uh, that has really reduced the groundwater overexploitation in China. But I'm not seeing this happening in India or in Mexico or, you know, in some of these other countries. The moment people start to use groundwater because the river flow is more uh, erratic, because the rainfall is more erratic and we have climate change, yeah, then you get into problems. I like it. You know, if I am an irrigation farmer, I also would like to have my tube well that I can switch on when I want. You know, I switch it on, I pay for the electricity bill, but I have water. Fantastic from the viewpoint, viewpoint of flexible operations. But for the sustainability, it is an, uh, a bigger thing. And really, I think the American law and also in California with, the, with the, their, their Groundwater Act, that, that is something that is a big difference with all the other countries. So with your technology, with your watch, uh, you are using the, the same satellites that other people are using, these NASA satellites, and you have an algorithm developed over 25 years, which helps them see or helps them know how much soil moisture is in the root zone. Is that right? That is correct. Yes. So it's the soil moisture in the root zone, which is important. Um, it's also this actual crop evapotranspiration. Why is that so important? Well, that's the amount of water that is what we call consumed. That water is gone. It's vaporized, literally changed from liquid in the soil to vapor in the in the sky, all right? And that's the amount you want to replace because you know this amount of water has been gone from my soil. It's not easy because it depends on the moisture and it depends on the crop type and the age of your crop and the weather conditions. So the U.S. has a very nice technology for 60 years on estimating crop evapotranspiration, uh, which is called the crop coefficient ET reference methodology. But this was invented in the 60s, you know. So uh, if, if you still use it, then it's like, you know, driving with a Chevrolet truck model C10, you know, that's not something you, you do in, in the 2020, you know. You, you want to have more modern technology than just a crop coefficient and an ET reference. And I think that has been very good work and it's the world standard. But I really think that there are so many assumptions on those methodologies that if we can measure every pixel, every field by field, you know, we have a much better, more accurate technology. How can it, an algorithm and you have to explain to me as a non-technical person here, how can an algorithm 
extract information like this, like, you know, evapotranspiration and, and um, root zone soil moisture without having those data points, uh, with, without, you know, how can it adapt to the differences from field to field if it doesn't have the data points? Yeah. No, that's a very good question. And uh, the way that is done is by measuring the temperature of the leaves or, or the canopy. So we measure the temperature. And that's amazing because um, we hear about weather forecast and we look outside and we think there is a certain temperature, right? But that is the air temperature. Now, the air temperature is relatively homogeneous, relatively homogeneous, uh, uniform. The leaf temperature can be up to 10 or 20 degrees different. You know, it can, it can be colder, it can be hotter, and one leaf is like this, another leaf is like that. And the leaf temperature is an indicator on the water availability. We call that also evaporative cooling. So if a leaf has a lot of access to water and moisture, then it's having more evaporation and it cools down. It's the same as the human body. If we are working hard and we start to sweat, then by sweating, the temperature goes down. And it's the same analogy with a crop. A crop is sweating. It's the transpiration of the crop. And by higher transpiration, the temperature goes down. So that is something that we really have to measure. We cannot model that. We cannot estimate that because it depends on the crop development. Maybe there is a disease in that crop or maybe there is a salt, soil salinity challenge. Maybe that crop has insufficient moisture. You know, it all changes that temperature. And that is why having data on the crop temperature is, is fundamental to make this, this algorithm, let's say, reliable. How about uh, in terms of soil type? You know, when, when you get a new EraWatch customer, um, you're providing them the satellite data. Do you also need to pull soil samples on the ground in order to calculate that accurately? No, no. The good thing is that there is a self-calibration mechanism in, in, involved, so we don't need to have any soil sampling. Basically, the client, the customer, only has to specify the type of crop because a strawberry, for instance, is much more drought-sensitive than a barley. Uh, so that kind of information we need because, you know, a, a strawberry, you give a much sooner irrigation advice than, than, than barley. On the soil information is something that we like to have, but it's getting a little bit more technical here because we have to convert certain potentials that we measure in the soil to soil moisture. And that relationship on water retention is soil dependent. So it's not a fundamental requirement. It's more like nice to have. What, what have been the limitations in this area of other satellite imagery companies? Because there's been a lot, especially in the last decade. Um, what have been the limitations that you thought, no, the, the world still needs ZeroWatch because they're not doing it? Yeah, no, most of these other uh, remote sensing data providers, they have a very simple vegetation index. They call that an NDVI, a Normalized Difference Vegetation Index. Why? Well, it's very simple. You don't need to understand re remote sensing science. You just measure near-infrared 
reflectance and red reflectance, and you can calculate your index. And you know, people got get excited about it. But that is how remote sensing started in the in the research laboratories in the 70s and 80s. So it's again an example of a very old technology, and it's simply not enough. The temperature is a lot of additional information that, uh, with the proper crop physics and soil physics, we can get much more information. We can retrieve much more information on the status of that crop. And so that was the big breakthrough for you then was the temperature, being able to convert this imagery into uh, an accurate temperature consistently uh, using the, your algorithms. That was that was the, one of the big breakthroughs on your end? Sure, absolutely. And then also looking at some additional information such as, uh, you know, what are the, the number of green uh, leaves the crop has, but also the solar radiations. So cloud cover is very important because if you have more clouds, then you will have less energy available for evapotranspiration and crop growth. Um, we have different types of satellites that measure the, uh, the cloud cover and solar radiation. Also for rainfall, so we have there are rainfall satellites because if there is a heavy rain, for instance, during an, a tropical monsoon, or so then, yeah, you don't need to irrigate, you know. So the watch irrigation scheduling is also very much based on rainfall and weather predictions. And so we look a few days ahead in the, in the weather prediction uh, so that also we can say to a farmer, no, no, wait, there is, too much, there is enough rain, there's no need to irrigate. Hmm. So your, your research over 25 years and the 17,000 uh, citations, essentially a lot of that is kind of validating that these algorithms work under various conditions, under different crop types, under different geographies, et cetera. It's kind of like validation that's spread through the scientific community. Uh, then you just decided to commercialize it here in the past couple of years. Is that right? Yeah, that is a very good summary of my, uh, how you say that, uh, my life works. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. With a lot of the other irrigation tech companies, they are very much, you know, moisture, at least in my experience, are kind of moisture sensor driven. Um, is there anything that that you're unable to do through EraWatch, you know, that, that maybe you, if a farmer needs it, they still need to go buy one of these sensors? Well, yeah, often we, um, we sell it in combination as a package because I want to scale up because everything is automated. So uh, it's all cloud-based computing, which is good. You know, in the old days, I had 20 engineers in my team processing all these images. Now I'm alone. <laughs> uh, so I, it's completely scalable. But you always have people conservative people or, or not, you know, it doesn't matter. But they want to check it in their own backyard. They only believe it when, when it's, it's the same as what they measure in their own backyard. So I have resellers, what I call, because uh, I cannot be, uh, be active and everywhere. And, uh, and I think often the combination is also good. So, so that if people say, look, this $6 per acre is really not so much. Um, can I... Uh, can I have that in combination with some field sensors? Because 
only if I've seen that the lines are equal, you know, for, for one season or, or half of the season, then I believe it. Otherwise, it's like hocus pocus, you know. How can a satellite see <laughs> what, it, what is happening into my soil? You know, it's, yeah, it's difficult to explain to a farmer. So in that sense, the, the field sensors can help to, how to say, to cross that chasm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think you're hitting on something else here, too, which is for a farmer, irrigation is kind of emotional. Like um, they they are very worried about getting it wrong and they know they have done the same thing year in and year out and it has worked. Um, maybe that thing is too much irrigation. Maybe that's too little irrigation, but it's gotten it's gotten them through. And that's where it becomes emotional. Uh, how do you overcome that to to get them to trust a new system like this? Well, that's a very good question because a farmer has a, often an own re, an own reason for water stress. So if you have beans, and if you really want to have a higher yield of green beans, then you should, in particular moments, you should have stress. But just the right moment. And the right level of stress, let's say 10, 15% max, only for 10 days, right? And yeah, this kind of information is something the farmer has to decide. It's an emotional thing. It can also be agronomical. agronomical. And uh, so what I like to do, I like to give a range. So I give a range on my irrigation advices between a minimum and a maximum. And then the farmer has then some some liberty to, to fill that out. And that's one thing. And the other thing is that um, I, I also compute the crop production. Because in the end, it's about the crop response to water. You know, we irrigate to have a proper crop response, right? That That's why we do it in the end. So um, I'm also showing in on the Erewatch portal and even on the app, you can see the production of every day. So day by day, you get the crop production. And, and that is nice to, to see because farmers sometimes want stress, even for grapes, you know, like good wine quality needs also certain stress. And they can check it out. They can see the line, what is my production? And what would have been my production if I had given much more water? And then you can see, am I in this 10% range or 12% range in production or not? Now, this is, I think, very important. Although other people say, can you make it fully automated? You know, because sometimes it goes wrong in the end. You know, I have all the information and then I give the instructions to a guy to open the gate and he does not want to take the risk and he's opening it two times longer because he does not want to have the risk that he's under-irrigating, you know. And yeah, that is maybe also something that, that is possible to make it automated. But I like it, to be honest, I like it that the farmers look at the data and that's why I give them a range and they can see the crop response to water and then say, yes, I, I made the right decision. Hmm. Is there a type of farm that this is maybe n not right for? I mean, in terms of size or crop type, um, or are you pretty much open to any farm globally that wants to to adopt this through the app? Yeah, it is less suitable for those who get water on rotation. 
So, so far, we have been speaking about farmers that have on demand. They open the hydrant or the tap and they get water or they switch on the pump and so on. And that is usually the case if they have a drip system or a center pivot, so they have access to water. But in other places, you may have a canal, right? And then there is a rotational system among farmers, which means one farmer gets water once in eight days or 10 days, you know, and then it's a little bit, uh, yeah, a little bit harsh that he gets an advice to irrigate and, and the irrigation is really by a traffic light, red, orange, green. And he sees red, but he is not, it's not his turn yet. You know, that, that, that can be frustrating. At the other hand, I have also seen countries in Africa, that they say, look, um, yeah, this is not meant for um, rotational systems, but now the farmers can show to the, to, to the local authorities, like, hey, you see, we have an eight-day interval, and five days are red, and three days are green, so <laughs> you have to really give me more water on that one moment, you know, so either enlarge my gate, or um, I give me more time, I can open my gate from one hour to two hours and so on. So, yeah, and, and that is good because you get the right discussion. Farmers now have a proof. They say, look, we are not getting sufficient water. Before it was always, no, the irrigation department was saying, no, no, we give you the right amount, it's your problem. You make a mistake. And now it is not longer there. There is a kind of neutral um, source of information. So it is less suitable for rotational flows, but I think still it's very useful. And in fact, I'm starting with a you know, very large area in India where there will be thousands of farmers involved, where also we're going to look on, hey, can we now help these farmers in a more fair share of the water? Uh, and not that, for instance, farmers in the head end of the canal get much more water than the farmers in the tail end of the canal, because that is something that typically occurs in developing countries. I know that's not in the US, because if you take one bucket of water too much, you will be brought to court. But in many developing countries, people just do it. You know, so I hope that in the end, also, it will result in a more fair distribution of the available water resources. Interesting. So, so in that India uh, project, will all those thousands of farmers have the app and be checking it daily for their own irrigation needs? Yeah. That's what we are working wow. on. So we, we are translating it into, uh, into Hindi and that you can read it. Also, another example in Honduras, I had a sugarcane factory and uh, there's one river and at the end of the dry season, the river almost is empty. Yet there were 2000 farmers irrigating from that river, same source, you know, and guess what? There are farmers who take all the water, there are farmers who get nothing. You know, so in order to have much more uniform situation, uh, more uniform income, longer-term farming, enough cane for the factory, also, you know, they, they, they are now thinking on how to help those, those farmers, you know, one by one. Hmm. Very interesting. Wim, thank you very much for doing this. I, I could talk to you for another hour, but I'll be mindful of your time here. Uh, where should we send people who are interested to, to Earwatch? Is it Earwatch.com? Yeah, there's an Earwatch.com site. There's also a few nice uh, introduction movies and uh, 
with an with all kind of info. You can also go to LinkedIn. There's a YouTube channel on Area Watch. Yeah, so please visit us, and everybody is free to sign up. So you can also just sign up your name and email, and then you get access to demo farms. And maybe it's interesting to mention we have five farmers from the California that agreed to be demo farmer. It means everybody can uh, sign up and see what happens on those five farms. Some of them are really big with tomatoes and cotton. Some of them very small with, with wine. But it helps you to understand the system. And then you can subscribe your own areas. You can either sign in on uh, interactively on the screen, or if you have any Google Earth files, you can send them to me, and, and I take care that digital boundaries will be translated into the, the standard IdioWatch uh, polygons, as we call them, so, so that you know, everybody can, uh, can start monitoring. Usually it takes one day, not more than that. Uh, so if you sign up today, tomorrow, you can have your, have your, have your first irrigation advice. It's, it's an annual subscription. But really, it's not more than $6 per acre. So I really want to make it very affordable for everyone. Also, for those who are just curious, say, I don't believe this. But please, if you listen to this podcast and if you get intrigued, just why not? Just just try it for a year or try with, you know, maybe 50 acres to start with or 60 acres and uh, and see whether you like it or not. It's not. It's not a waste of money and it's not much money anyway. All right, thank you so much to Dr. Wim Bastianson for his time here on the show today. I really enjoy these water-related episodes. In, in fact, if you know of a good water-related story that we should feature here on this show, please let me know. Uh, I'm not looking for guest requests. I get plenty of those. But if you know of a true example of someone actually moving the needle when it comes to water scarcity in agriculture, feel free to send me a tweet at Tim Hamrich or an email, tim at aggrad.com. Thanks also to Rainier Vanderlee at Vinduino for introducing me to Wim's work. Uh, you can hear from Rainier back on episode 189 of this podcast. Thanks so much for your time and your attention. I really don't take it lightly. I really appreciate you listening every week. We'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation. Hey, thanks again for listening to the Future of Agriculture podcast. If you like what you heard here today, I'd love to connect with you further. Go over to futureofag.com. That's futureofag.com. And let me know a good email address for you so we can keep in touch. Also, you'll be able to check out a ton of bonus content on the blog while you're there. Otherwise, make sure you're subscribed to the show so you can catch another fascinating ag innovator here next week. Hey.